Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Urban Planning is Not Boring. Today, we have a very exciting um, guests, plural, on the podcast today. We have Rio Planning, which is a nonprofit organization um, that is focused in urban planning and committed to closing the health, wealth, and opportunity gap in communities through land use planning, policy creation, and cultural preservation. And this organization is based out of Texas in the United States. And today we have the Rio Planning co-chair, Evelyn Mayo, and the executive director, Victoria Farrell-Ortiz. And so I would love to invite you both to introduce yourselves. Um, a little bit about kind of how we found you is just through social media and just mutual connections and we, explored your website and your social media and we're just really taken with I guess the mission and the work that y'all are doing in empowering communities and really working directly with community members and so we're just so excited to have you. <laughs> we're excited to be here thank you so much for having us. Um, so my name is Evelyn Mayo and I'm one of the co-chairs of Rio Planning. Victoria, Jennifer, and I are all three the founders. So, you know, yes, we were elected and kind of appointed to these roles, but also this, this whole thing started with the three of us wanting to work together and um, agreeing that there was a gap that we could fill. And so that's kind of how, how I came to be here today. So thanks for having me. Hello, Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm so excited to be here with you all today. Um, hello, listeners, um, sharing space with you, even though we're not physically together. Uh, my name is Victoria Farrell-Ortiz. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am multi-ethnic. Uh, outside of Rio Planning, I'm a barrio historian. Barrio means neighborhood. Um, my research focuses on Oak Cliff, where I live now, but then also the neighborhood that my ancestors are from, Cemento Grande. Um, I'm a daughter, mother, partner, uh, cultural artist, um, ancestor in the making and advocate of equitable urban planning. Um, as a multi-ethnic kid, I saw a lot of disparities in my family's lived experience. And so that has a lot to do with what brought me to urban planning and meeting Jennifer and Evelyn and co-founding Rio Planning and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you all about that today. Thank you guys both so much for being here with us. And I kind of just want to jump right into the conversation because I think your introduction kind of illuminated what we're going to be talking about today. So can you kind of dive in, either one of you or both of you, how Rio planning came to be? And did you see any gaps in current or past planning practices that you were looking to fill with this uh, with this organization? Yeah, so um, I'm trying not to go too far back, but I, I moved to Dallas in 2017 from New York and um, was working for Legal Aid of Northwest Texas, um, doing poverty law, kind of community outreach engagement on um, fair housing and environmental justice issues in Dallas neighborhoods. And I met Jennifer Runghell, who's our third co-founder, and she's not here today, but um, I met her in 
at a neighborhood association meeting in the 10th Street Historic District, which is actually the most intact Freedman town in the United States, and it's located here in Dallas. And um, she was the first urban planner that I had met. I had done my undergrad in environmental science with a concentration in race and ethnicity and um, was really a community organizer. That's what I had been doing and thought was my path. And after meeting Jennifer and understanding, wow, all these environmental injustices, many of these fair housing issues, you can draw a direct line from land use planning practices that are racist um, from our past to these outcomes today. And so uh, Jennifer was at the Inclusive Communities Project, a fair housing nonprofit at the time. And we just started collaborating and realized we wanted to create a home for the type of work that we wanted to do, regardless of um, where we were at in our careers. And so I started my planning degree at the University of Texas Arlington while working full time. And um, pretty much the rest is history. Victoria came on um, when we were looking to become more formal, you know, shape up what it would look like for us to do this work and what those gaps are. And first of all, as a planner, your options are kind of these big corporations that are kind of Costco style planning, like ACOM, no shade at them, specifically just naming one that comes to mind um, and or working for cities. And we didn't want to do either. And yes, there are smaller outfits, but a lot of the time they're for profit. They're brought on as sub consultants for cities or for these bigger um, outfits. So by being a nonprofit and specifically focusing on the harm that racism has caused to our cities and people in places, that was our gap that we were trying to fill. Thank you so much for going into that. And I think that you're kind of alluding to this and, and we can touch on this a little bit later, but I think that it is really interesting as a student who, you know, is still kind of um, considering long-term what kind of planning practice I want to be in professionally, hearing about the possibility of a nonprofit as opposed to kind of, you know, the two main tracks of city and local government and, um, you know, private firm. And so, yeah, it was, it's really interesting to hear that, but really quick before that, mostly out of my curiosity, I'm, I'm um, curious where the name Rio planning kind of came from and why that was the name that was chosen. This is a little funny, but Jennifer's <laughs> last name is Rangel and my last name is Mayo. And so okay. Rayo is a combination of our last names, but also um, is lightning in Spanish. Correct me if I'm wrong, Victoria, is like, um, or a ray of light. So it's kind <laughs> of like ray of light. Um, and so that felt optimistic and kind of on brand with what we wanted to project out. I love that. I love a dual meaning. That's so cute. Um, that's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then um, kind of as you alluded to, I I think we're we're curious a bit about kind of why Rio is a nonprofit as opposed to kind of being a for-profit or private firm. Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about that, that would be awesome. Yeah, so 
I think the importance of Ryo being a nonprofit specifically is because we're here to serve community members that have been historically underserved. Um, and that's at no fault of their own, right? It's just because systemically white supremacy seeps into every system in existence, right? And so we wanna make sure that cost is never a factor for our services, for the communities that we work directly with. And so I, I mentioned earlier that um, I'm multi-ethnic. And so my mom's family is Mexican, Mexican-American. Um, my father is biracial, but um, he was adopted by my paternal grandparents who are white of Irish descent, which is why my maiden name is Farrell. And um, so like growing up, it was really confusing to me seeing how like my family members who lived in Richardson, a suburb of Dallas, had like the basic things um, in the built environment that were not basic for my Mexican uh, family members in West Dallas. And then on top of that, uh, being surrounded by industrial uses in West Dallas, um, I think in the city of Dallas, there are 49 um, Latinx, uh, Black and Brown neighborhoods that are surrounded by industrial uses, as opposed to one white neighborhood. And so Rio exists um, to uplift that history uh, because it's, it's definitely undertold, but then also to make sure those that are frontline, um, impacted peoples and communities have the resources that they need to advocate for themselves because you know like my family I didn't learn about urban planning until my senior year of my bachelor's degree at which point it was too late for me to change my major but um, there are so many um, factors to that right so thinking about what it takes for someone to feel comfortable going up to a city planning commission or a city council offering testimony, writing a letter, gathering signatures for a petition, those different avenues that people have to flex their civic muscles are not something that people are just born with, right? You have to be taught. You have to have, having someone walk through those processes with you really helps to make them more approachable and um, not as scary because going into a city council meeting or going in to speak can be intimidating and make you feel like you're not the expert on your lived experience when when you are but that has a lot to do with why Ryle is a nonprofit and why we chose that model we incorporated it as a 501c3 there's different types of nonprofits you can be a c4 c6 there's lots of different options but we chose a c3 that's really wonderful and you know, just kind of what you were talking about in terms of folks being a little bit hesitant or scared to speak about their lived experience because they feel that they may not have the resources, you know, in order to actually go forth and, and speak their truth is, is really, you know, it's important to acknowledge because we do see in a lot of spaces that not only are kind of public gatherings not accessible for many folks, but they are also really intimidating. So I appreciate that that's a service that you guys are able to offer. And Sam and I have not really gotten the opportunity to speak to many nonprofits. So we are really, really grateful to, to be talking with you guys. And a question that we have for you is, 
kind of understanding how a nonprofit functions in the in the planning space. And so we would just kind of love to hear a bit more about the organizational structure of RIO, um, you know, for instance, you, having a board and things of that nature, if, if you could kind of dive into that a little bit for us and our listeners. Sure. So, and feel free to chime in, Victoria, too. Um, so to incorporate a nonprofit, in Texas, you have to have three people. And so me, Jennifer, and Victoria, obviously, were those three people. After that, um, there's, you know, a lot of required things and also some best practices. Like we have bylaws, and that's that kind of lays out how we are governed, how frequently we have to meet, um, you know, minutes, all that kind of stuff that's fairly standard for nonprofits. And we got to choose what those rules look like, like what a good number of board members for us would be. Um, so right now, I think we have a board of seven. Um, nine. Nine. Okay, we brought on two other people. Sorry. So yeah, we started at seven and then brought on two others for nine. Um, none of our board members can be paid. So Victoria became staff um, and so now is no longer a board member. But I mean, funding wise, what it looks like is grants, individual donors, um, and we still do pursue RFPs just like anyone else would. So um, one of our pieces is reforming city planning as well as neighborhood planning. So we do want to work with cities, like to be clear, our goal is to um, influence how city planning happens in addition to having grassroots responses to you know planning that is occurring in and around the communities that we serve so right now for example we have a contract with the city of lubbock so we are their you know um planning consultant to do two neighborhood-led plans sorry two neighborhood plans and create their neighborhood planning policy so that's just like any other you know rfq type deal as long as it's furthering our mission, which it is, we're gravy. That's really helpful to hear and kind of like um, dive in a little bit deeper. So having a board, are the board members, sorry, I just, I'm, I'm personally pretty unfamiliar with how nonprofits are structured. So in terms of the people who are, you know, doing like the planning practice and being, I guess, the representatives in like a city planning consulting way, are board members like planners with the firm? Or are they more just they have a say in how the nonprofit operates? Like, are you three kind of the main planners, quotes, for lack of a better term? And then the I don't know if this is making sense. Yeah, it is making okay. sense because it is weird. I understand where it comes from. Um, yes. So the three of us as co-founders handle most day-to-day -day operations. Okay. Our board is more of the, you know, big picture, um, fiscal agents, um, questions around, you know, what kind of projects do we want to take on? What do we not want to take on? Um, it's a consensus-based process. Um, and 
you know, but this ex- to the extent that they want to be involved, they can. I mean, right. we have board members who are, you know, at Parsons studying interior design. We have okay. board members who are practicing attorneys here in Dallas. So we like to ensure we are mindful about recruiting board members who will complement the needs, right? Like grant writing, um, whatever. But in terms of operations, it's me, Jennifer and Victoria. I was having like kind of the same question as Sam. And also I was curious, which you kind of alluded to, are any of your board members planners in practice? Or I'm hearing that, you know, you have some lawyers, some interior designers. I'm curious if any of them are planners and kind of, you know, when you visualize a board or often the way that I've seen boards run, they often don't have as much of a background. And so sometimes there can be a disconnect, but it seems that you guys are very intentional in making sure that there's an aligned vision. So I'm just curious if you do have folks on on your board that, you know, are kind of mission aligned and and have the a background that would, you know, push further what you guys are trying to accomplish. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's a diversity in skill because being a nonprofit and being, yes, a practicing planning firm, but also an engine for social change and community education. We kind of fill a um, non-traditional space. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that Victoria was a was and is a practicing artist and you know, archivist and historian, we absolutely love that because that brings a strength to our planning practice that many other planning practices don't have. And so, um, you know, I also teach at Paul Quinn College, which is a small HBCU in Dallas. Um, You know, I am AICP certified, you know, so Jennifer and I are really the more traditional planners, I guess, in terms of formal education. But um, based on the constituents we serve, um, our board complements every part of the work and we subcontract when needed. So like in Lubbock, we have um, a partnering planning firm that's more, you know, savvy with economic analysis. Right. Not, not my thing. I couldn't do that. So we subcontract out as needed. Yeah. And Sam and I talk about this a lot that you don't necessarily have to have a traditional planning background in order to be involved in urban planning. And I think that's the great kind of flexibility of this field. So I, I love to hear that. I wanted to add more just like basics of, about being a board member um, and having a board, since I, I think that might be helpful. Um, so board members have a fiduciary uh, responsibility um, to carry out the, the mission and to you know um, be good stewards of funds um, to the end of meeting their mission, right? And so that means whenever you're a board member, you have to be bought in on the mission so Ryle, for instance, wouldn't bring someone on that wasn't supportive of, you know, fair housing or fighting against environmental racism. Um, beyond that, uh, boards have officers. You know, um, Ryle is a little different, even more so because we have two co-chair positions, right? And so um, um, besides that, just like the nuances between um, having day-to-day work and then um, strategic planning, the board is, is there, you know, to 
be a lot of uh, a big part of strategy building. Um, but they're not more so in the day-to-day things like myself, Jennifer, and Evelyn are. Um, I was saying before how Jennifer and Evelyn are co-chairs. And so that means like to our board, to our bylaws, they're equals. But typically we have like a, a president, vice president, or a chair, co-chair. And so um, that's something else that is unique about uh, Ryo, um, just like wanting to have like a, that shared power piece. Um, and so if you all have any other questions about nonprofit formation, um, governance, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that. Awesome. Thank you so much for kind of giving that background. I think just in the interest of time right now, we can kind of move into Rio's like planning praxis and um, kind of mission, I guess. And then we can also always circle back about um, nonprofits. But so Rio has four main areas in which you all provide services, um, community education, direct advocacy, reforming city planning, which I know we've briefly mentioned and community planning, which has also been brought up. Um, but it'd be great if you could kind of go into each of these a little bit more in detail and what are the types of like activities. And I don't know if it would be like the typical like client. I know obviously for city reforming city planning, a lot of like you're saying you work with cities to forward that mission. Um, but for some of the others, kind of who you're who you're typically working with. Yeah, so we have our community education piece that is really exemplified by our People Powered Planning Academy for racial justice. We train and educate people on how to organize around urban planning matters. Um, right now, we're going through our first class of the PPPA. Uh, and so whenever you ask about like the demographics and who is being served, um, we've made this class uh, in service of people who are Oak Cliff residents, are part of Oak Cliff neighborhood associations, or are part of an Oak Cliff business association. Um, we made the academy specifically to service a need um, because of authorized hearings that were happening uh, in Dallas. And you all know authorized hearings are the way that zoning can be changed. And so we wanted to make sure that community members were proactive about this process and um, they were feeling like they had the, the knowledge um, that they needed, but we have content like the history of land in the city of Dallas. Evelyn just went over uh, zoning and land use 101. We have non-conforming uses 101 um, two weeks from now, but it's a 10-week program that goes back and forth between in-person sessions um, where we go over that curriculum content that I mentioned, but then on off weeks, uh, we have office hours. So that way, academy members can come to us uh, with their most pressing needs, whatever that might look like or feel like. We wanna make sure that they're having their needs met with the things that are most important, most crucial to them right now. Um, then we have neighborhood planning. Uh, we help write plans that protect neighborhoods. And Evelyn mentioned some of the work that we're doing in the city of Lubbock for Jackson Mahon and Dunbar Manhattan Heights. Really excited about that work. Um, it'll be the first time that Rio is doing neighborhood planning, although Evelyn and Jennifer have done neighborhood plans outside of their Rio capacity. Evelyn, do you wanna add anything to the neighborhood planning piece? Um, just a little bit of like 
color in that a big part, we are advocate planners. So in terms of planning theory, I think you can, we, we generally fall in the kind of equity planner and advocacy planner role. Um, in that, we respond to a grassroots need. We do not have a prescription for what a good, healthy, happy neighborhood looks like. That's not our business. We understand what the challenges are and how planning and zoning can help move away from the challenges and towards the goals. All of that in the context of the racist history in the US around land use and zoning, because we've had groups, um, you know, higher income, more affluent, um, white neighborhoods kind of try to weaponize our mission against us in some ways. Like, well, you're about self-determination and neighborhoods knowing best and blah, blah, blah. Okay, but in the context of equity and this very specific racialized history that has perpetuated segregation and um, reduced equitable distribution of, of infrastructure and um, amenities. So I just always like to make sure it's clear our mission is not just neighborhoods should do whatever they want. It's not, it's not NIMBYism. It's, it's not that it's um taking taking a hard look at the ways that planning policy has led to today's outcome and how we can use them to reach goals that are equitable thank you um besides that we have direct advocacy so we provide direct advocacy for residents by researching the issue uh, listening to communities concerns and advocating with them or on their behalf if they're uncomfortable to the point of not being able to do it themselves, unable to show up in person, that kind of thing. Um, and then finally, reforming city planning, um, reforming city planning by making changes to current urban planning policies and practices to redress today's inequities. And that's something that is shown through our uh, planning policy that is also being made right now with the city of Lubbock. And just to give an example real quick about the direct advocacy piece. So the city of Dallas was leading an area plan for a large part of West Oak Cliff. And um, in that area plan draft, they recommended the um, essentially making all automotive uses non-conforming. And this is an area that has about 50 like mechanics shops and all of them are non-white. Well, most of them. Um, most of them are Spanish speakers. Um, almost all of them, you know, are, are migrant families who have set up shops, small businesses. And so we worked with other organizations to organize those mechanics, inform them, hey, did you know that there's this plan out there that's threatening to make y'all non-conforming? And from there, it spiraled into many people being involved in this planning process, which ultimately removed that language. And now this group's a force to be reckoned with. The Automotive Association of Oak Cliff is holding, you know, candidate forums, um, participating in other zoning cases. So that's a direct advocacy kind of example. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really good to kind of, you know, provide an example that's happening, you know, in real time. So that's that's truly wonderful and great work, honestly, that you guys are doing. Um, so. Kind of next up, we're we're hoping that 
you could kind of share some of the just wonderful work that you guys have done thus far on the 2022 annual report. Um, are there any highlights that you would like to share from the last year that have come out of this uh, this report? I think what Evelyn was just talking about, um, the removal of language that targeted small Latinx, um, Hispanic owned auto shops. It was something that would have opened the door to the possibility of pushing them out and they had no idea it was even a consideration, right? And that's because there wasn't enough community engagement done, not enough outreach done. And so um, thanks to the advocacy of, of Rayo and Somos, uh, Somos Tejas, uh, they're a um, political group that uh, does like get out the vote voter registrar things, um, doing year round campaign work, uh, the West Oak Cliff Coalition, and then forming ultimately the Automotive Association of Oak Cliff, like everyone was talking about. Um, it's a really great, great story, considering that they were going after their council person, um, trying to get a meeting with him for a while, right? So that way they could have their voices heard. Um, and, you know, there is like levels of avoidance there. And then ultimately, once they got a, enough power built up in their base and, you know, had enough uh, media interviews, then their council person went to them and asked, would you be willing to do a community forum with me on this issue? So it completely flipped the power dynamic there. And it was really amazing to think about. Um, besides that, um, Evelyn hosted a panel discussion on reforming city planning with Dallas TRHT for their Racial Equity Now cohort. Evelyn, do you want to talk about that? This was the one with WOCAP, right? On yeah. WOCAP, yeah. Um, yeah, again, this, we try, if we think about it as a scale of involvement, most neighborhoods find out about all of this stuff when a zoning case is at their front door, right? And that's why we have the direct advocacy piece because we want to be there for you because, you know, the other side has their lawyers. So we're kind of like the legal aid of planners at CPC to some degree, as long as it aligns with our mission. Um, so from that direct crisis around automotive uses being at risk of displacement, um, these other greater uh, calls for a better way to do planning emerged. And so this West Oak Cliff area plan was a massive area with like five or six different neighborhoods. Um, and so in our presentation, and we highlighted the ways that the coalition had been successful in breaking up the plan into different sub-districts and slowing down the timeline and ensuring that um, translation services were always made available. I mean, this is the first time a city planning document has been made available in English and Spanish. And that's a practice that we just, it's default. We do everything um, in English and Spanish here in Texas. And as other languages arise, we will definitely be including them. Um, so it's kind of from the crisis to um, increased capacity and policy change. Um, that we saw happen with the West Oak Cliff Area Plan. And we highlighted it in this presentation. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
Go for it, Victoria. I was going to mention how, like, you know, through through us facilitating meetings, doing like uh, advising hours with the Automotive Association together, myself, um, our co-founders contributed uh, 220 hours of meeting facilitation and uh, planning technical assistance for the AAOC in that time. And just thinking about how that's such a thing uh, that's in high demand, you know, and so we'd like to continue being able to, to giving that time to the AAOC and other communities like them. Um, but capacity is our biggest issue. You know, I'm mm-hmm. the only staff person. We have an intern, thank goodness. But um, besides that, we really have a, a need to fill in Rio. There's not a lot of planners out there, like you all have mentioned, that have the same practice or approach that Rio does. Um, we are cultural sustainers. And so we think about um, the cultural identity of neighborhoods, you know, I, I spoke about being a, a barrio historian and consider myself a resident of a barrio because I live in Oak Cliff. Um, I'm very proud of that. And so thinking about how um, displacement is also at play and how we want to help preserve um, the cultural heritage of as many people as possible through this process, because it, it can be different if we choose to be different. I think that's really wonderful, um, you know, the the way that you put that. And I also think, you know, maybe in a to to shine a bit of of hope, I think I've started to see both in practice and education that I think there are a lot of up up and coming planners who are more aligned with you know, equitable strategies in planning and really trying to foster a sense of community. And, you know, I'm trying to find the the words to, to put this eloquently, but just folks that are, you know, not only trying to plan for the sake of traditional planning practices, but really are trying to foster a sense of community and in, in the decisions that they're making. And so I'm hoping that you guys can find some, some folks who are, you know, ready to join your team and and help you on your mission because it is extremely important. And I think we are becoming much more aware, especially just as planners in general, that, you know, this is it. Our history cannot be forgotten, but it definitely needs to change the, the practices in which we move forward. And I think that's being realized a lot more. Um, and that brings me a lot of hope in this space and it's organizations like yours that I think are really pushing forward that message and making it, you know, making it a priority. And I think that's really great. And I, I just want to say that I appreciate the work that you're doing. And although Sam and I have just, you know, very recently become familiar with your work, I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to sit down with you guys because, I can tell you for a fact that I know that when our listeners hear this, there this sparks a lot of inspiration. It, it inspires me in a lot of ways as well. And so, um, you know, although I don't work for a nonprofit, there are still practices that can be implemented in different sectors. And um, I'm just grateful for for getting to chat with you guys. Thanks. No, the feeling is mutual. And um yeah, we're excited. There is a growing um, 
movement, it seems, um, because of the increased awareness around the harms that, um, you know, we're still facing because of redlining, the ways that highways separated neighborhoods, the way that people are in harm's way because of climate change and environmental justice issues. I mean, we're all going to have to find a way to live together. And um, that's going to involve being more democratic and inclusive and equitable around the distribution of resources. So, you know, I very much see this as um, an exercise in democracy more than anything else, and especially around um, who gets to say what, you know, what our future looks like, and hopefully it's all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much again. And um, we also would like to give you the opportunity to talk about any projects, initiatives, other organizations that you would like to highlight, whether that be, you know, with RIO or in the greater Texas area. I know that you've mentioned some community organizations that you've partnered with, and we just always want to give space to amplify those uh, groups or individuals as well. Yeah, um, so currently, RIO is fundraising to bring on additional staff to work with the community full time. And so listeners, you have the opportunity to contribute today to our campaign to help make this happen. We have a really cool button on our website, riofunding.com, and it's called Donate. And you can donate there. <laughs> um, besides that, other people that I would like to uplift in, in this time, um, I think Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation is an organization that I look up to a lot. Um, they are a funder of our academy, and so they've supported our work directly, but um, I've also gone through their Racial Equity Now cohort, which is one of the best cohort experiences that I've ever been through, and I highly recommend for um, people who have a Dallas TRH or have a TRHT, Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation chapter in their city. Um, it, it goes back to narrative change and um, acknowledging our racist history and thinking about how history is more about the future because if you can shape what someone thinks is possible, then you can really have full-fledged control over what happens. And so arming people with their history is really important. And so um, I have a lot of respect for um, Jerry Hawkins and, and the group uh, that does really wonderful work over there. Besides that, um, I think Evelyn will talk about some of our contractors that have been working with us in Lubbock. Yeah, um, Desiree or Dee Powell, who founded um, Do Right by the Streets. Oh, yeah, we love Desiree. <laughs> yes, Desiree is our partner in not crime, in planning, um, <laughs> but uh, love, love their work and um, they're involved with our Lubbock project, doing activation, demonstrating proof of concept in small ways that, hey, even if you think this plan is going to sit on the shelf, which it won't, we'll leave you something tangible to help um, provide the appetite for something more um, full time. So shout out to them. Um, shout out to Enlace Solutions, which is our um, translation and kind of um, how to ensure that our engagement is always culturally relevant um, with the Spanish-speaking community. Omar Salazar is their founder, and he's based here in Dallas. Um, 
And Laura Quintero Chavez is one of our subcontractors who also works at Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. So um, a wonderful partner, but there's so many great orgs doing this work. And those are just some that come to top of mind. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for just providing all this information and kind of answering some of our questions today. We really appreciate having you guys. And again, Sam and I are always trying to bring folks back to talk about many different things and have kind of recurring guests. So we would love to have you guys back and, and coordinate that for a later date. But in the meantime, just we want to, you know, extend our appreciation and wish you guys the best of luck with everything you're doing. Thank y'all. Thank you. And we will so make sure we'll make sure to amplify your your fundraiser so that y'all yes. can bring on some help and have increased capacity to do the work that y'all are doing because yeah, we you. know how the burnout help. feels. You can't do planning alone. I, no. I need help. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs>